When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. episode of the birdshot podcast is presented by onyx hunt final rise and upland gun company on this episode of the show we've got some gear reviews and spotlights with your host thanks for tuning in to episode number 201 back to another episode of the birdshot podcast everybody thank you for tuning in i am so glad to be back with you this week if you saw my instagram post last week you will know that i was down and out with a pretty bad case of what i suspect to be the flu all in all i don't know that it was the sickest i've ever been but it was not fun and i had zero energy so last week was kind of lost and i'm getting caught up this week feeling much better and again, happy to be back on the Birdshot podcast with our episode today. This is the gear reviews that I mentioned a few weeks ago now before the Justin McGrail episodes. It's been a couple of weeks since I've recorded this now, but it was right during the peak of hunting season, which I felt was a pretty good point to stop, assess, take a snapshot in time of some of my thoughts on the gear I have been using a lot this time of year. Share some of that with you here just for your reference. Give you a little insights on some of the things that I use. It's December, it's holiday season, maybe you got Christmas budgets or gift cards to work with, looking for something for you or for an upland hunter that you know, I assume for you if you're listening to this, but hey, we know other hunters as well. So maybe you pick up an idea here. At the very least, hopefully you get a tip or some perspective on something you've been eyeing up and in hindsight after doing this it was fun i enjoyed actually sort of talking through some things myself and 
almost sort of thinking out loud as I went through some of my gear and stuff on the podcast. It certainly would be cool to bring in another guest or two to talk gear and have sort of not necessarily competing perspective, but different takes and ideas on gear and what other things people use in different perspectives. So that I think would be a cool episode to do at some point. And if you have any thoughts on that, I think that would be cool. And you're interested in other stuff, let me know. And I would certainly would consider that. But for now, you're stuck with me this week, but I think you'll enjoy it. And we'll be back with another interview next week, which I am very much looking forward to. Before we jump into the meat of the conversation today, I will just say thank you to Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Of course, your continued support is greatly appreciated. We do have the November drawing. I need to complete that yet. Still getting caught up. Again, last week was kind of a lost week for me. So I will do that. Should have it for you next week. Winner of, you'll remember, the winner will have their choice of an Onyx Elite subscription card or a complete series package from the Upland Institute, the video series from Justin McGrail and Ron Bame. Got a lot of great feedback on the Justin McGrail episodes as expected. I had a lot of fun doing those. I hope you enjoyed them, and I know a lot of people did because I heard from lots of you. So that was a blast. Of course, thank you to Justin and Ron for making that happen and making the free video series for one lucky winner available to us on the Birdshot podcast. So we'll pull that winner next week and just know that anybody out there listening you too could be eligible for patreon monthly giveaways sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot get into those monthly giveaway drawings you get some birdshot podcast can coolers and stickers you'll get bonus content when that is available and you can get discounts on upland institute or a pair of boots from gumleaf usa which you might hear a little bit about towards the end of today's episode and with that out of the way, it is December 8th. It is, it's it's in the evening right now. It is a beautiful, I think we're just past the full moon, but the last few nights have been very, very bright moon. There's always something really unique and neat, I think, about a winter full moon. You got snow on the ground. Everything is so, it's so bright anyways with a full moon, but then you put the snow on the ground and it's just so bright outside and boy, it's really, really shining bright outside the windows of the Birdshot Podcast Studios. I got the Christmas lights up in here. It's just, it's that, that time of year. It is December. Christmas is coming up and for me, hunting has slowed down quite a bit, mainly being sick last week, but also a little bit weather related. It's been pretty cold here. That's just breaking as of this afternoon, essentially, but you'll maybe be proud of me. At last, it was Sunday the 27th. I could tell I was getting sick, and that was right after Thanksgiving. And it was, at that time, we had some really warm days. We melted a bunch of snow, and the conditions were pretty good in the grouse woods. So I got out for a couple really good hunts around Thanksgiving. And that Sunday, right after Thanksgiving, I knew I was getting sick, and it was a really nice day. So I went out, and I had I got rose down for a couple hours, and we had a really, really good grouse hunt and then the next morning basically i was actually hoping to go the next day because it was also pretty warm that day and then we had melted a bunch of snow but that day i woke up and very quickly realized that was not happening and then the rest of the week was basically a blur so i haven't hunted since the 27th it's december 8th i haven't got a december hunt in yet but i think that's going to change here 
this weekend, like I said, we had some cool temps and now the next four, five, six days are going to be like highs in the thirties and stuff. So it's looking pretty good. And I'm sure a bunch of you out there listening are either in peak season or getting plenty of hunting in yourself. So I'm super happy for you. I am happy to be healthy and back on my feet and I will be hunting again soon, hopefully, but that is probably enough from me this week. You're going to get enough of me anyways, talking gear today. So I'm sensing that I'm just happy to be back talking to <laughs> listeners of the Birdshot podcast this week. Last week was seriously a struggle, but hey, I don't have it that bad. So get out there and have some fun this weekend. Follow the dogs, chase some birds, enjoy the hopefully nice weather wherever you are. Still hunting season. Oh, and one last thing before we jump into my gear stuff. I wanted to read this email. I set this aside. I got an email from a listener looking at the date. This was Monday the 28th. So the day I was literally glued to the couch, basically couldn't move, zero energy, oscillating back and forth between being absolutely freezing cold, shivering, blankets piled on top of me. And then 10 minutes later, I would be dripping sweat. It was, it was the worst. It was just terrible. I could not regulate the, I, I must have had a fever or something. It was really bad. That went on for like two days. But anyways, I got this email. It, it so much cheered me up and I am cheered up again, just reading it. Now I had set it aside to read it in today's intro. So I will, I will withhold the, there's nothing, uh, nothing in here that I, that I think the, that I think the emailer would be ashamed of or anything, but I'll just withhold his name and, this email just really cheered me up. So here goes. Listener writes in, Nick, love your podcast and especially your recent two-part with Justin and the Q&A. I know I'm late with a question, but maybe you can put in the file if you get him back. Next to my recliner, I have a bookshelf with an assortment of great and marginal reading. It is within easy reach should the wild or wolves be struggling and I need to feel better about improving my mind or station in life. And just in case... You're not following along there. The listener is from Minnesota, so he's talking about the Minnesota Wild and the Minnesota Timberwolves. So the fact that they would be struggling is kind of a normal occurrence, although the Wild aren't half bad, but that's neither here nor there. All right, back to the email. It has an assortment of books of various genres, including cookbooks, travel guides, hunting, and fishing, including the likes of George Bird Evans, Teddy Roosevelt, Mark Parman, etc., it also has a few cubbies where I can hide snack plates from my spouse. <laughs> Hopefully said spouse is not listening, but again, the email is anonymous. So after a recent grouse hunt, I plopped my weary 64-year-old carcass in my lazy boy, embraced an adult beverage, and prayed for the Packers to get crushed again. <laughs> Just as I settled in and my eyelids became a bit heavy, I noticed my trouble-making lab inching towards the bookshelf while watching him sideways through my eye slits to not tip him off. I noticed he deftly reached out with almost surgical precision and pulled a book from the shelf, which is amazing considering the size and breadth of his moist jowls. He tried to sneak off and prance a bit with treasure, like he does sometimes in the field when he makes a long retrieve, but I was able to bust him before he could shred the book, like he is inclined to do with TP occasionally. <laughs> now the question. Of the dozens of books and magazines on the shelf, he plucked the Gordy Gullion book, The Ruffed Grouse, and he had it flopped open to chapter 9, Winter. My question is, this a sign? Is this a message from him, or maybe more importantly, the rough grouse gods that I need to step up my game? Do I need to study and be more aware of the habitat I am selecting for our hunts? Do I need an app to help me identify the brush that pokes me in the eye? 
We had flushed a handful of grouse earlier in the day and I managed to bag one, but is the message that I could have been doing much better? After all, we flushed them all where they should not have been. I think I will read the winter chapter again. Any insight from you or your guests would be welcome. I've had a great fall. Montana, North Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, heading to Kansas and Arizona for two weeks after Christmas. All the best. Oh, love that email. Thank you to the listener that sent that in. Appreciate it. You sent it at a perfect time. I haven't even responded to said listener. I probably will let him know that I read it on the show, but it was a very well-timed and it put a smile on my face that day. As for the question, kind of sort of buried in there. Yeah, I think our dogs are always talking to us one way or another. And however you want to interpret it, I sort of look at my dogs the same way and think they're usually telling me something and they're probably uh, smarter than we often give them credit for. But I can't think of too many better books to be cracking open and reading this time of year, The Ruffed Grouse from Gordon Gully. And there's some great, great stuff in there about the Ruffed Grouse's relationship with winter and snow. I think he kind of wrote the book on grouse and snow or at least wrote an important chapter in that book. I know his research at the Cloquet Forestry Center, I think I'm kind of going off memory here, but he did a lot of lot of research not too far from where I stand recording this, and he dedicated a huge chunk of his life and work to the rough grouse. And anyone that's hunted grouse has probably benefited from his research in one way or another. So a little tip of the cap to the late Gordy Gullion, and I think the listener should give his dog a pat on the head, a milk bone, and a thank you, because they did get a grouse that day. Anytime you get a grouse, it's a darn good day. So, all right, let's do it. This episode kind of picks up where I had cut it off on the first part that I released before the Justin McGrail episode, so we kind of jump right into it here, but you get the idea. Let's talk some gear on the Birdshot Podcast. that complete i'm going to move into the mid-season gear conversation that i kind of teased earlier i thought this was going to be like a half hour episode i won't know how long this is going to be until after i go back and clean it up a little bit and edit it but based on the time on my recorder it's i think it's gonna be longer than that but anyways let's talk gear it's the time of year where it's a good time to talk about gear i think from just sort of share some of my thoughts and perspectives on the stuff that i've been using a lot over the last couple months. It's one thing to sort of look ahead to the season and plan and think about the gear that we may or may not need or think back on the season's past, but when you're right there in the heart of the season using this stuff every day, every other day, that kind of thing, I think that's a that's a good time to sort of take a snapshot and assess what's working, what isn't working, and as I kind of mentioned in the intro, this isn't like a top to bottom list of everything I use slash wear, but it's uh it's definitely a top list of sort of the primary items I'm going afield with that for the most part would not go afield without. And as I go through each one of these things, I just gotta talk about them a little bit, talk about what goes into my thought process as to how I use them and why I use them and maybe make a few suggestions or recommendations based on the particular item. But for the most part, how it fits into what I'm doing 
and how I'm using it. And then you can therefore take any perspective that I'm sharing and filter that through your own set of needs and applications and see if it makes sense for you or maybe a comparable item or something like that. And one other thing, I mentioned it earlier when I was talking about Onyx Hunt, I'm going to, in an effort to just be as transparent as I can, I'm going to try to share with you my relationship with any of these companies, how I obtained the products, and just put that up front so that, again, you can take that for what it's worth, filter that through your own decision-making process. And again, if you act on any of these recommendations or suggestions, or I'm not even necessarily doing that, I'm just highlighting some pieces of gear, you can at least know how I acquired them and wound up using them. So first and foremost, I am going to start with the three leading partners on the Birdshot podcast, the title sponsor of the show being Onyx Hunt. So Onyx Maps, I just talked about them in the email or question. Again, something I do not go afield without, and it's something that I literally use every day I'm hunting. I've got Onyx Maps open on the way to the cover. I'll pull it up in the cover, and you can bet I'm using it on the way to the next cover. It's, it's just that kind of a tool. It's very, very integrated in my hunt process throughout the season. It's even like a borderline entertainment thing. You know, I'm sure I'm not alone where I, you find yourself sitting at home, sipping a beer, sipping a drink, and you're just scrolling around on your phone, looking at Onyx maps. And if you're like me, you're daydreaming about the rough grouse Valhalla hidden underneath the digital satellite imagery that you're looking at. And I just, it's just so much fun to look around at the vast public land resources or wherever you're hunting and just kind of looking at the landscape and getting a different perspective. Again, looking at aerial imagery, sort of setting the stage in your mind for what you might find. And then personally, I feel when you get into the cover and you're looking at it with your eyeballs and you're actually in the game, in the hunt, that overhead perspective and the track that I've walked, I usually am running a track while I'm in the cover, can help me make some in-game decisions on how to efficiently cover ground and identify areas that I might have overlooked or identify areas and or objectives I want to check out that are not immediately in front of me. So there's a lot of tips and tricks with Onyx. They have they've made a big push this year to do some online masterclass events, webinars. They did one of Rough Grouse and Woodcock, Jerry Havel at Pine Ridge. They did one about hunting sharp tails. They had Tyler Webster on there, Marissa Jensen from Pheasants Forever. And there's a lot of information on how to use the product if you are unfamiliar. So that's very helpful. I would say mainly I'm looking at public land layers. I will add any sort of forestry information and or forest disturbance layer that is available. Minnesota has a new forest disturbance layer this year that I have utilized to identify some bird covers or at least forestry that I want to incorporate into my hunt. So check that out if you're hunting in Minnesota. And that goes beyond bird hunting too. If you're out there deer hunting in Minnesota, forest disturbance layer can often mean thick bedding cover for deer, but that's neither here nor there. I love the line distance tool where you can measure the distance between two points. You pull that tool up, drop a point on your truck, 
and then drop a point on the far edge of that distant aspen cover or forest feature that you want to check out. That's usually what I do. And usually it's about a mile or two further than I had thought or had hoped. My eyes are, you lose perspective sometimes when you're scrolling around those digital maps and my eyes are often bigger than my stomach, so to speak. But again, that's, it's part of the fun, at least for me, I get sort of looking at trying to identify those. This kind of ties back to what I talked about this time of year, tromping around the woods, going deeper, trying to hit areas that are at least maybe in your mind, quote unquote, untouched. I mean, I think I get into some areas that are not visited all too often, but I think it's to think that nobody has been there is, I don't know, it's fun to think about, but you never, you never quite know, right? But, but I will use that line distance tool to identify some of those places and to be prepared on what kind of a hike I'm looking at. And again, the more you use that stuff, the more you start to realize, like if I see a distant forestry feature and I see it's a mile in, I know if I cut my dog loose, we're going to be likely kept fairly busy throughout that. You know, we're not just walking a straight mile, 10 minutes, and we'll be there. You know, the dog is going to keep me busy on the way there, and I'll make some decisions based on what kind of cover am I going through pass-through cover? Does it look halfway decent? Do I know anything about it? But just... I'm kind of preparing myself for what kind of a, just to know the distance to a certain feature then I can sort of reverse into, okay, how much time do I have today? Do we have the daylight? Do I have the dog power, et cetera, et cetera. All of that stuff I think falls under the category of using our most limited resource, which is our time to help me and my bird dogs hunt more efficiently and be efficient with our time in the woods. And Onyx Hunt is an invaluable tool for that reason, along with many more. All right, next up, Final Rise, aka the Final Rise Summit Vest, Summit Series Vest that I have now worn for. This is my third season wearing the Final Rise Summit Series Vest. Phenomenal piece of equipment, essential to my Upland setup to carry the gear that I need to carry and carry it well. And there is a clear distinction there on carrying it well versus a vest that does not carry it well. And again, Final Rise, official partner on the Birdshot podcast. I've interviewed Matt Davis, owner and founder, a number of times on the show. He sent me a vest before we were working together. He sent me a vest when I interviewed him the first time. I used that one for a season, and then the following season, he came out with the khaki and orange color, and I am just a real sucker for traditional upland color schemes. Blaze orange and khaki has been just something that I have appreciated going way back to when I first started grouse hunting and probably was looking at magazines and L.L. Bean catalogs and that sort of thing. I just have always associated blaze orange and khaki with with one of my favorite things in this world and for that reason i think it will always be kind of special to me and anyways i got a the blaze orange and khaki summit series vest matt sent me that and then again earlier this year in 2022 final rise became a partner on the bridge podcast so official partner just an fyi there but the final rise vest as i mentioned carries gear and carries it well there are two main components that make the final rise vest what it is 
The first of which being the waist belt combined with that lumbar pad in the back. So you got a little lumbar pad on the back, the waist belt, snap buckles in front, convenient, quick, easy to use, easy to undo. And the straps that tighten the waist belt pull forward. A very, very clever idea that prior to the final rise vest, I had never seen that on an upland vest. I'm not saying it didn't exist, but I had never seen it. That pull forward waist belt tightening system allows you to just super cinch that waist belt down, lock it into place. And what that effectively does is it loads 90 plus percent of the weight right there on your waist belt, relieving that burden from your shoulders. Where a lot of vests that I had wore in the past, whether they're just like the total kind of almost like shirt jacket vest, where it's a vest, there's no sleeves, but it's just draped over your shoulders. You got birds and no, there's no waist belt in those vests. You got birds, shells, whatever the heck else gear you got, everything pulling on your shoulders all day long. And you can bet you're going to feel that at some point during the day. Whereas with the final rise vest, that problem is eliminated. I'm carrying the bulk of the weight on my waist and low back and the shoulder straps are there and they've got, you got adjustment all over the place to kind of fine tune this and get it exactly where you want it. The shoulder straps are there. You could wear the vest without the shoulder straps. Like it's not going anywhere, but you have the the shoulder straps there to kind of hold everything in place and just provide a little bit of support and tie down up top. The other critical feature, the shoulder strap is very low profile. And by that, I mean flat. It is a flexible material that lies flat and contours around your shoulder and chest, whatever you got going on your upper body that flat, flexible shoulder strap is going to contour right to it. So you're not going to have any ridges, bumps, or lumps that could offset your gun mount. And Matt Davis always likes to say, miss the mount, miss the bird. He's absolutely correct. Although sometimes I make a terrible gun mount and still hit the bird, but it happens from time to time. But we don't want a vest shoulder strap getting in the way of a gun mount. And it's surprising or seemingly to me, the amount of vests you see out there that have like a backpack like padded shoulder strap that it doesn't have to be much, but just a little bit sticking up there is just, it can have a negative impact on your gun mount. And if the vest carries the weight like it should, you really don't need a padded shoulder strap up there. My shoulders are never sore from the shoulder straps cutting or digging into my shoulders on my final rise vest because that weight is all carried firmly and securely by that waist belt or most of it, I should say. So anyways, those are really the two features that make the final rise vest what it is. And final rise is a quote strap vest, which a strap vest was not invented by final rise. It's sort of a, a platform that had been established and utilized by different manufacturers to that point. But I would say that Final Rise took the strap vest platform, focused on the crit, the two key features that make a strap vest what it is, which is what I just described. They did those two things incredibly well and then built up around that some additional things that make the Final Rise vest unique, how it carries your gear, the pockets, all of the things 
that are going to differ and vary from vest to vest. It's clear to me that on the final rise vest, everything was very thought out and it just does the job and it does it well. So really, really love my final rise summit series vest. There are other options. There's a more middle ground legacy series vest that has a few less bells and whistles. And then there's even a more minimalist sidekick series vest that again, depending on how you want to use it, if you got dogs, you need to carry water, that sort of thing. The Summit Series becomes a real good value proposition there. But there are other vests in the lineup that might be a better fit for you. All right, number three, Upland Gun Company. Again, official partner on the Birdshot Podcast. And as most of you hopefully know, if not telling you now, I work for Upland Gun Company as well. So consider me biased there. And one of the perks of working for Upland Gun Company is that I get to play around with and experiment with some of the guns that we offer as a company. Last year, I shot a 20-gauge Venus demo gun of sorts that by the end of the season, I had pretty much fallen in love with. A beautiful 5 and 3 quarter pound 20-gauge with 29-inch barrels, straight stock, double trigger, fit almost perfectly well to me. I didn't order it with custom dimensions at that time, but it was very close to what I would shoot. And after a little time getting used to it, I ended up shooting that gun very well. And in fact, I would say probably better than any other gun I had ever shot up to that point. So fast forward this year, I wanted to order a gun that I had specced from top to bottom, which is one of the cool things that we get to do at Upland Gun Company, it's the core of our business model is that you build the gun that you want, customize within the options and categories and fields that we make available to you as the consumer. You can go on the Upland Gun Company website and choose a platform side by side over under, build that gun up or down as you see fit. And anyways, that's what I did this year. Last year, I really liked the venus side-by-side gun lightweight it's a scaled down slimmer sleeker frame than our zeus model is demi block barrels versus the zeus having monoblock barrels and as such the venus tends to be about a half pound or more lighter versus the comparable gauge gun in the zeus model so the venus is a it's overall it's just a lighter weight smaller sleeker gun and This year, based on a lot of conversations that I had, some of which were recorded on the podcast with folks like Lars Jacob and Del Whitman talking shotguns, weight handling characteristics, gauges, payloads, patterning. This year, I wanted to experiment with the 28 gauge and the lightweight 12 gauge, which happened to suit the Venus lineup quite well in that We've got a scaled frame 28 gauge option available in the Venus. And we had RFM build the 12 gauge in Venus for the first time earlier this year. And as that turned out, that first 12 gauge that we built in the Venus model weighed in at six pounds, just over six pounds. It was six pounds and not one ounce. It was like 6.01 pounds for a 12 gauge, 28 inch barrel, straight stock splinter forend. Anyway, so I took that and I built almost identical, really they are identical, except for one feature, identical 12 and 28 gauge Venus guns 
I'm looking at the 28 gauge here. So I'll just describe it sort of from buttstock to barrel. Orange rubber pad, straight grip, splinter forend, 30 inch barreled 28 gauge. The 12 gauge is exactly the same. Orange rubber pad, straight gripped, splinter forend, except 29 inch barrels. Well, with 29 inch barrels on the 12 gauge and 30 inch on the 28 gauge. The weights of those guns are for the 28 gauge, 30 inch barrel, 28 gauge, five pounds, five ounces, just over five and a quarter pounds. The 12 gauge, six pounds, five ounces, just over six and a quarter pounds. So the two guns are essentially exactly one pound apart, six and a quarter pound, 12 gauge, which I think is about perfect for that lightweight 12 gauge game gun. And then the five pound, five ounce, five and a quarter pound, 28 gauge with 30 inch barrels. And I've now spent the last month and a half shooting almost exclusively the 28 gauge. I have perhaps gone off the deep end at the urging and coaxing and luring of Del Whitman and others, but there may be no turning back for me at this point for a grouse and woodcock gun. I have, I will say this, I feel I've seen what I need to see to know that whatever I w- I'm giving up by shooting a 28 gauge over a 20 gauge is for all intents and purposes, probably insignificant in the grouse woods at the typical ranges that I shoot at and the shots that I take. Now to give you a little context there, I feel I'm a fairly conservative shooter. I'm not the type of hunter. I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just telling you how I go about it. I don't shoot at every single bird I see. I'm kind of picking and choosing high quality opportunities, birds that I think are within range and And I know, and I talked about this a little bit after my prairie trip this year, that what I deem to be in range is in fact like well within the range of the guns and the ammo that I'm shooting. I I could shoot further were I more confident in my own abilities as a shooter. And I've you learn that by every once in a while a a bird gets up and gives you enough of a look that he kind of convinces you to take that shot and you stone cold kill it. Now, again, a, a pellet can find its way anywhere. So try not to read in too much of a sample size N of one, but just as a general rule, I'm shooting at birds that are very much in range and I've got a good look at, and that's all relative. I'm primarily a grouse and woodcock hunter. And you know, if you're hunting in the grouse woods, you got to take some shots where you don't have amazing visual, but you've got enough, but I'm, I'm definitely very rarely, if ever, shooting at sounds or taking a shot at every flash of wing or every bird that gets up over the treetops. Again, that's just me. That's just how I go about it. And I know that's only so valuable here as I describe it on the podcast. But all that to say, what I have seen in the birds that I have connected on, hit and killed with my 28 gauge is to say that the 28 gauge is an incredibly effective tool for grouse and woodcock hunting and lots of other upland hunting. I'm not going to get into all that entirely because it's not what I do for most of the year. I will not sit here and say the 28 gauge is somehow magically better than a larger gauge, a 20, a 16, or a 12. 
I think the idea that it is better than those gauges is kind of silly if you're paying attention to the actual ballistics and shotgun theory of which I have learned a little bit about. By no means am I an expert in that. But I think the quote-unquote magic of the 28 gauge is it's the total package. It's that you generally have a gun that feels smaller in your hands. It is smaller in your hands. It's lighter weight. It's smaller. It feels smaller. You get these cute little shells that shoot three-quarter of an ounce of payload, and maybe there's even an expectation in your mind that it's just not as an effective of a gun as your larger board 2016 or 12. And then you go out and carry this light little thing, and you stone cold drop a bird out of the air and you're almost you've exceeded those expectations you had in your mind which may or may not have been proper expectations so i think when talking about the 28 gauge it's kind of the total package it's the weight it's the balance it's the carryability combined with the fact that you can still shoot a three-quarter ounce payload that is enough pellets to handle most upland applications now i could go down a rabbit hole here of which Dale Whitman and I went down in an episode earlier this year talking about payload and increasing payload and shooting payloads that are bigger than the standard payload for that gauge. So in the case of the 28 gauge, three quarter ounce is your standard payload. You can shoot seven eighth ounce, which is your standard 20 gauge, or you could shoot one ounce payloads out of a 28 gauge gun, which is a standard payload for a 16 gauge or a 12 gauge so that's a different conversation personally with me experimenting with the 28 gauge this year one that fit me i had one before really liked it it didn't fit me that well i did not shoot it very well so this is the first 28 gauge that i've owned that i did put custom dimensions on i spec'd it out entirely completely for me i forced myself because my natural tendency was going to be, okay, how can I squeeze the most juice out of this orange? Can I get some 7 8 ounce loads? Or what can I do to, to really extract maximum performance out of the 28 gauge? But I did not do that. I forced myself to shoot three-quarter ounce payloads out of the gun. And because of that, I did opt to move down or move to a smaller shot size. So for the past few years, I primarily have shot 7.5 shot for rough grouse and woodcock hunting. Shot a little bit, mixed in a little bit of eight shot here and there, but not much, primarily seven and a half shot. This year, I bought three quarter ounce loads of eight shot. And thanks to a listener, during the season, I bought another case of three quarter ounce eight and a half shot, which eight and a half shot was a, that was a shot size recommended to me by multiple people that I know to be very effective grouse hunters and great shots that love the 28 gauge, and they both recommended shooting eight and a half shot. So I took their word for it and decided to try it myself and have been up to this point in the season thoroughly impressed with shooting those payloads, those shot sizes out of the 28 gauge at Grouse and Woodcock. Extremely impressed would be the best way to put it. And again, I was not a doubter of the 28 gauge. I'm not surprised that I've seen those results. I think it, it made sense as I talked to these people and explored the possibilities, but until you see it and experience it for yourself, it's always kind of a, it's a little bit tougher to grasp, but when you're actually out there using it, seeing it and getting the results it kind of solidifies it a little bit more in your mind. So 
That's a lot on the 28 gauge, and that's the Venus 28 gauge from Upland Gun Company. I love that gun, and my poor old 12 gauge has yet to be fired, and that is because I carried that gun for my first two my first two rough grouse hunts of the year. I carried my Venus 12 gauge again, a beautiful, almost perfectly weighted six and a quarter pound 12 gauge side by side that I absolutely will use. My hope was that I was going to have it before I went on my prairie trip and I was going to primarily shoot the 12 out there. The gun wasn't delivered until I, after I got home. And so anyways, then I went to the 28 and the last few years I have done a lot of gun switching, more gun switching than I wanted to. And that's based on just some opportunities to shoot different things and kind of my interests and desires changing a little bit. So I've, I've switched guns and consistency is key when it comes to shooting and gunning. And anytime you're switching around to guns that have different stock dimensions and fit you differently, there's going to be some adjustment unless you're just one of those people that can pick up anything and shoot it, which they are out there. I've hunted with those folks. I'm not one of them. I do very well with a consistent approach. And while my 12 and 28 gauge have the same stock dimensions, they are different weights. And I've kind of been, I've been wanting to take the 12 out. I was thinking as I got later into the season, Maybe I would take that out, and I've I've got some I got some one ounce loads for that. I even have seven eighth ounce loads of eight and a half shot loaded up, and wanting to experiment with some of those smaller payloads out of a larger bore, shortening shot string. Some of the theory and and conversation on that that we've talked a little bit about on this podcast. But to this point, I have I have skewed towards staying with the same gun. And just keeping that consistency. My shooting has been, I guess I would have to say streaky at this point this year, which early on, I felt there was a little bit of adjustment period to a new gun. And really, I got these guns during the season. So I haven't did what didn't go up to the clays range and shoot sporting clays and get very comfortable with them. I kind of just took them right into the woods, which I guess is not ideal, but that's what I did. And again, it didn't take very long to reach a level of confidence where I knew that this gun was shooting very similar to the gun that I shot last year. And I knew that I didn't need much more adaptation or adjustment to it. But what did happen is I would have some good runs with it and then you miss a few. And part of that is just grouse hunting. Sometimes the birds fly your way. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you can overcome that. Sometimes you can't. Grouse hunting, I think, inherently leads to streaky shooting a little bit. But, of course, with a new gun, you know, I'm questioning that. I'm wondering what's going on. I don't know. Just trying to, not to get too far off the beaten path here, but I was just trying to account for some of that stuff. And ultimately, to this point in the season, once I started pulling the trigger and dropping birds with the 28 gauge, I've just opted to stick with that up to this point in the season. And... We'll see. I don't know. Will I bust out the 12 gauge? Maybe, maybe not. It is, as I mentioned, kind of straight away here, something about carrying that five and a quarter pound gun, knowing what it can do and what it's capable of after having seen it now for a month and a half here. It's kind of hard to reach into the other gun case when I'm calling up the dog and heading to the woods. It's, it's like, do I want to carry an extra pound? for the next two hours, or do I just want to carry the 28 gauge in these little three quarter ounce shells? And again, to this point, that's what I have opted to do. So those are my Upland gun company guns. I end up talking to lots of 
prospective customers and customers that do listen to the show. So I'm sharing a little bit of information here and some of the conversations that I have with those folks and just kind of sharing my experience with the two guns that I built for this season. And it's been awesome. I feel really, really lucky to have and to hunt with the two guns that RFM built for me this year. They are phenomenal quality construction, the craftsmanship that went into them. It exceeded expectations. And I have seen and handled a lot of their guns. When I unboxed these two, I mean, it was a little special because they were, I had ordered them, but they are just beautiful, beautiful guns, and I love hunting with them. So kudos to the folks at RFM for building a hell of a double gun, and that is that. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit UplandGunCompany.com. All right. I don't know if I'm going to spend the same amount of time talking about the rest of this stuff as I did those first three items, but kind of segueing off of that gun conversation, the ammo that I have been shooting pretty much exclusively this year would be Winchester AA, and that is the Winchester AA three-quarter ounce eight-shot, which is the standard AA 1,200-foot-per-second load. And then, again, as I mentioned, thanks to a listener of the show, I was talking to him a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about 28-gauge ammo, and he told me that he had bought Winchester AA's in 8.5 shot, which surprised me because I had never seen those available. And sure enough, I went to search for them on ammoseek.com. I don't know if any of you have used that, but I have used that with pretty good success. Over the, It was a lot better before the ammo shortage hit a couple of years ago or whenever the heck that was, a year ago. But it still works well. It's just the options are less. Ammoseek.com. I went there. I searched, I think, 28 gauge. And then I always put in double A's are easy to search for because you just put in match for double A. And then I think I selected eight and a half shot. And sure enough, Winchester double A in Super Sport, which the only difference that I'm aware of on the Super Sport versus the regular double A is that the Super Sports run at 1300 FPS. That skew is available in eight and a half shot. So I purchased a flat of super sport Winchester double a eight and a half shot and all the double A's I purchased. I was not given or provided the ammo. I have no relationship with Winchester as much as I would like to. I, I do not have a relationship with Winchester. So I am buying my Winchester double a ammo and I couldn't be happier with it. I it's quality stuff. I kind of talked about my thinking and what went into shooting the eight and a half shot. And that kind of goes back to what I was talking about with Dell Whitman, looking at those pellet count charts 
in the past few years, I'd been shooting an ounce of seven and a half shot, which is give or take 350 pellets. And when you go down to a three quarter ounce load, you go to eight shot. That is, I'm going off memory here. Well, forget it. I'll just look it up here and cut out this pause. In the three quarter ounce load of lead, number eight shot, there are 307 pellets. So you have 307 pellets versus the 350 that I was shooting in the one ounce of seven and a half. But if you go to eight and a half shot in a three quarter ounce payload, you've got 373 pellets. So I'm now I've increased my pellet count beyond what it was in the one ounce of seven and a half shot. Now there are again, things at play there, given that the eight and a half pellets are smaller, you've got less weight so in theory, they are delivering less energy traveling at the same speed of a given seven and a half shot pellet, but there are more of them, 23 more of them in that payload. So you start doing the math, you put more pellets on the target, you can deliver the same amount of energy as a fewer number of larger pellets. And again, you can kind of get lost in that stuff, but understanding some of the basic principles and how your pellet count goes up and down as you change payload and shot size is a good thing to understand. And what went into my decision there was, again, wanting to shoot the standard payload out of the 28-gauge gun so that I was not dealing with an excessive amount of recoil or potentially negative effects from shot stringing, which is why you shoot a payload designed for a given bore. And again, Dell and I talked about this on that episode. The effects of shot stringing are somewhat debatable, but sticking to the core principles, that's why I made the decision going down in payload, going to a smaller shot size to keep and actually increase, in the case of eight, eight and a half shot, actually increase my pellet count. That's what I did. That's what I've been shooting. And I've been super, super happy with the results I've been getting from my Winchester double A's in eight and eight and a half shot so that's ammo next up my garmin items i guess i'll say garmin alpha 200 i run the alpha 200 handheld gps unit with two of the tt15 mini collars i run the mini collars always have actually i shouldn't say that i had originally had the full size tt15 and i eventually had to replace that after a few years this was a while ago and at that point, I made the decision. I didn't have rows yet. I made the decision to get a mini collar. Hartley is Hartley's a 50-pound dog, and he is, by the book, he, could wear, he can wear the full-size TT15 collar and should, based on the sizing recommendations of, that they give you. But I opted to run the mini collar on him, just to have a smaller collar on him. And it was actually at the time, it had something to do with the three-quarter inch strap that the mini collar uses versus the one-inch strap of the TT15. And I'm sure you can hear that squeak toy in the background. That is Rose deciding to play with a squeaky toy. Rosie, come on. Anyways, I switched to the mini at that point and... It worked for me. It worked just fine. It fits on Hartley. The battery life is less in the Mini. They say the range is less, but in my 
practical use of the collar, I have not noticed any differences between the Mini and the original. And again, the battery life thing, I'm not suggesting that the Mini's battery life is as good as the original. It is not, but it does not impact me in how I use the collar. I always have enough battery to get through the day and I'm pretty diligent about charging. Now, you could say that if you actually needed your GPS collar in a worst case scenario, like you lost your dog, that would be the one time you would really want to have all that battery life. So if that's your thinking, I totally understand that. And that is certainly one benefit of the full-size TT15. Now, in the case of Rose, my two-year-old setter, she weighs like 34 pounds. She's kind of a tiny little thing. And really, I think the, I think the full-size TT15 would almost be too big on her collar. She's definitely a TT15 mini candidate. So it was an easy decision when I was adding a second collar for Rose. I knew she was going to be a smaller dog. And I got the TT15 Mini, and that's what she wears. So anyways, that's the Garmin Alpha 200. Love that unit. Incredible peace of mind hunting in thick cover with these dogs that are obviously family members, precious to us. It's amazing to think about people hunting. It wasn't that long ago. It was before I started hunting with bird dogs. But it's amazing to think about hunting with these dogs without GPS collars. Again, just one of those pieces of technology that... Once you use it, boy, it would be hard to go back. And fortunately, I don't think we'll have to in the case of GPS technology. But like any piece of technology, when it works, it's amazing. But it's not without its quirks. And every once in a while, you have a little issue. I will say that I've been using the Garmin Alpha. First, it was the 100. Now, the last couple of years, it's been the 200. Since 2014, since I first got Hartley, I bought the Garmin Alpha 100 right away. Oh, and I realized I didn't say this. I purchased the Garmin Alpha 100 originally. The Garmin Alpha 200 was given to me, provided to me by Garmin. I had a relationship with them on the podcast at that time. They did provide me with the Garmin Alpha 200 bundle, just to put that out there. But the amount of issues, hiccups, little things that I've had happen to the Alpha are very, very few and far between. And I would describe the unit as an incredibly reliable and consistently accurate device. It's it's a, it's really amazing to me that you can strap a collar on your dog, carry a handheld on your vest and keep such accurate tracking and location on these dogs. It's it's no small thing, it's no small feat of technology that we can carry that around in the palm of our hand and and strap it to the our dog's neck. It's it's incredible. So, it's a product that I have very much enjoyed using, would not by choice hunt without it. And I think both my dogs and I are happier and safer hunting with our Garmin GPS collars. And I will also say that I have the Garmin Phoenix watch that was also given me by Garmin. I had previously worn the Phoenix 5, which I purchased on my own. And then about the time I got the Garmin Alpha 200, I think Garmin had sent me the, I now have the Phoenix 6 Pro Solar, which is an awesome watch. I wear it every day. I do some fitness tracking and it's a smart watch, so to speak. I don't actually use all those features. I don't have it connected to my phone. I don't want to get text messages and stuff on my wrist. I'm 
have enough problems focusing and not being distracted as it is. So I don't use those features, but I love the activity and fitness tracking of my Garmin Phoenix. But the reason I bring it up here is I would not have imagined that having the watch sync up with the alpha would be as convenient of a feature as it is. And I would not have described, I would never have described looking at my handheld to see where my dog is on point as inconvenient until I got the watch. Once you have the watch that is connected up to your alpha or other Garmin unit with the dog tracking widget or app on your watch, and you can see the dog's location and distance. There's an arrow pointing towards the dog and it tells you 30 yards away or hundred yards away, whatever it is. You see that on your wrist, the act of putting your hand down, grabbing your handheld and looking at the handheld has now become so inconvenient that it's crazy to think about hunting without the watch. That, that watch is the Garmin watch and the syncing capabilities between the handheld and the watch and the sort of quick application where you can just look at your wrist compared to grabbing that handheld or doing whatever you need to do to, to see and put eyes on the handheld is extremely convenient. And if you've already got the Garmin GPS caller for your dog, but you don't have the watch, I would definitely encourage you to take a look. You can get other Garmin watches. The Instinct is a, the, I haven't looked at these in a while, but it's a much more economical option than the Phoenix with less bells and whistles, but it does have that dog tracker. I'm not fully up to speed on the Garmin product lineup as far as watches and stuff go, but if you've never tried the watch and you have the Garmin handheld and collar, check out the watch. It is a really, really nice to have add-on feature and piece of gear for your GPS handheld collar setup. All right, that's Garmin. Next up, eyewear. Eye protection while we are roughed grouse hunting, or any upland hunting really, I think is an important piece of your gear setup, and I do not go into the woods without it. And once you, at least this has been my experience and that of some friends of mine, you start grouse hunting with eye protection if you forget your glasses one day or something or go into the cover without it, you will notice it right away because you it's one of those things where you almost feel naked out there when you don't have eye protection. And that's that's really for brush and all the debris and everything else that you might run into in the grouse woods. But more importantly, we are shooting shotguns that are slinging little tiny projectiles around that as safe as we all should be and strive to be every day, things happen. I've heard of pellets ricocheting, doing funny things. And in fact, I have told this story on a podcast or two, maybe, or a hunter's happy hour. I, when I was younger, when I was in college, I took a stray pellet to my eyebrow, believe it or not. I don't know what shot size it was, probably seven and a half or eight. Not out of my gun, out of a friend's gun. It was a, it was a freak incident that ended up being a story that we kind of laugh about now, but could have been a hell of a lot more serious. And I'm sure being in college and a bit naive, I didn't even really realize it at the time. I was not wearing shooting protection then. And I don't know that, I think it probably would have blocked that pellet, but even if it hadn't, my eyes would have been protected. So again, the, the pellet lodged in my eyebrow and I went down to the, I remember I went down to the hospital that day and had it surgically removed. They x-rayed it. They they didn't believe me, or I should say one of the personnel at the hospital was like, I don't think it's in there. And 
Sure enough, we did an x-ray and there was the pellet, a small little tiny seven and a half or eight shot pellet sitting right on my eyebrow and plastic surgeon opened it up and took it right out. So very, very close call and something that I think about from time to time today and bring it up now as an example that shooting protection is, eye protection is absolutely something that I would recommend you wear while you're upland hunting. And it's something that I wear every day I hunt. And on that note, this year I needed something new. I had been wearing a pair of glasses that they were, they were a nice set of glasses, but the lenses were going bad, getting scratched up, and I needed to replace them, and that line had been discontinued. So I was on the market for something new, and I had identified Ranger Eyewear as a company that was making shooting glasses a lot for, they really target clay shooting. And I think that's probably their biggest market segment based on what I can tell from the company. But they have some options that are geared towards hunting. I I looked at the the ones that they actually deem that are hunting glasses. I didn't I wasn't really into those. They're kind of more of like a sunglasses, kind of a standard sunglass template. Whereas I wanted one that was more for clay shooting, but some of those high-end clay shooting glasses are actually glass lenses which I don't I don't need and I don't know that it's exactly what you want. I think they're they're probably shatter. I don't know this for a fact. I'm just saying I don't think those gla- I think the glass in there is probably pretty impact resistant and shatterproof, but when you are hunting and doing an activity that has a higher risk of incident, I think the th- the thinking is you want to be wearing a plastic or certainly a, some kind of a shatter-proof ballistic spec lens. And so what I landed on, which I paid for without discount from Ranger Eyewear, is the Phantom 2.0. It is, a at the time of this recording, a $169 item, which is what I paid for it, that comes with a frame and three lenses, which I think is a very respectable price for what you're getting. And now after having used it, I had these, I bought these late summer, had them for my prairie trip and all through grouse season. I've worn them every day hunting this year. Very impressed. They have exceeded my expectations. The lens options, they got a bunch of, if you go to ranger.com, it's actually reranger.com. I'll throw links to all this gear stuff in the show notes reranger.com you look at the phantom 2.0 you can choose from a couple different frames they have a black one and they got some different colors and then those frames come with different lens assortments my big thing was i wanted i 100 wanted a yellow lens i love the yellow lens for overcast cloudy days when there's not a lot of light in the sky and then That's basically your low light condition lens. And then it goes up from there. There's a purple lens and a, I don't know if they call it vermilion, kind of a rose pink lens. Those are for sunnier, sunny and sunnier conditions. And they swap out very easily. They ride, the shooting glasses are designed different than your sunglasses. Shooting glasses are designed to, the nose piece is typically oriented to, to get the glass pretty high up and so that the frame is up higher than say your sunglasses might be so that your eyes are looking directly through the center of the lenses and you're not obstructing 
your vision. And I would say that the Phantom 2.0 pretty much does everything it sets out to do in a very respectable economical package. And the lens options are excellent. The fact that I could just get all three lenses right there in one package, they've worked out perfect. And I've hunted all conditions from straight overcast to bluebird sunny day. I've, I've got the three lenses to cover everything I need. And it's, I've been really, really happy with them. The one thing I'll say is that I like, if I could tweak it one bit, I would say that I would prefer a totally frameless design. You'll see some glasses out there that are frameless in that kind of the earpiece attaches to the side of the lens, but then there's no bar that goes across the top of the lens. And that was like my glasses before, which I really like that because like in theory, we're shooting rising burrs. We're kind of looking up and to have no obstruction in front of you in front in your peripheral vision, I think is the ideal setup for a hunting glass. But in this case, the Ranger Phantom 2.0 does have a bar that goes across the top and that's how the lenses attach. Now they did put some really nice air vents in there to help keep the glasses from fogging up, which is an issue when you're hunting in cooler conditions and you're really exerting yourself and you're breathing hot air. I've had it happen where you start fogging up glasses. If you're standing there, what'll happen, you'll notice it. And I've noticed it a little bit with the Rangers, but I would say it's it's at a level that I wouldn't expect it to necessarily be any better. So they're they're performing very well. When you're really exerting yourself on a cold day and then you stop and you're standing and waiting for the dog to circle in front or doing whatever, you'll kind of notice your glasses will start to fog up because that hot air is kind of pooling there. But if you're moving, it's usually not an issue. I will. I think the venting on the glasses from Ranger help. And just generally speaking, they have performed in every way that I wanted them to. The swapping of the lenses is very easy. It's They snap kind of in the middle. You, you pull the frame and the lens apart. And then they kind of have a little notch in the side of them that hooks into the frame. Take that one out, hook the new ones into the sides, line up the middle and squeeze between the frame and the nose piece and it will click into place and they are good to go. Super super easy to change in the truck. I always have them basically on the passenger seat of my truck and based on whatever the lighting conditions that day, I swap or don't swap and I'm hunting, but I I love the glasses. They're super comfortable. They're very light, very good lenses. And the company is still making the glasses, not discontinued like the last ones I had, which, hey, that's just, you know, that's the nature of the world that happens from time to time. So I'm not necessarily faulting that other company, but the Ranger glasses are excellent. You can get replacement lenses. So there's, there's even more lenses that I don't have for mine. I don't necessarily, I'm not in need of another one, but it's nice to know that I could go grab another one or mix in a different one. So anyways, that's the Phantom 2.0 from Ranger Eyewear. Awesome, awesome hunting glasses in my experience. And next up, you've heard me talk about these a bunch before. First Light, specifically Sawbuck brush pants, but some other things as well. I will say First Light last year sent me a pair of the Sawbuck brush pants. After I did, you might remember... I think I talked about it on the show. We did a little, I did a poll on brush pants and somebody at first light heard that and they sent me a pair and I tried out the Sawbucks and loved them. And I wore those after I got them. I wore them every day last season. 
was very impressed with, I, I was actually expecting them to be a little bit lighter weight and thinking that maybe they wouldn't be an all season pant for me as I get into the later season and cooler season, but they're kind of a, they're kind of a midweight pant in that they've got some weight to them. And I, I don't want to say that like, like it's not the kind of weight that's going to drag you down, but when you're going through thick cover and thorns and stuff, you don't necessarily want a paper thin piece of cloth separating you from that cover. And so they've got a nice brush facing on them. They are not a hundred percent spike briar proof, but for the cover that I find myself in hunting 99% of the time, they are ample, ample brush protection. And what they've got going for them is relatively lightweight synthetic material that moves with you, doesn't weigh you down, stretches and flexes where it needs to be. And they're just super, super comfortable. And they're, they're very versatile. I, they are effectively an all season pant for me. There's a day or two in the early when it's too hot where I wear some cheaper, lighter weight pants that offer zero protection. So I'm basically totally exposed to the cover at that point, but it's just so hot that it would be uncomfortable otherwise. But other than that, once I got past those few days, I'm wearing the Sawbucks every day from start to finish for the most part. And so I love the Sawbuck brush pants. First Light did send me quite the care package over the summer that included a bunch of couple jackets. Corgate Guy jacket is a really, really nice, lightweight, stretchy jacket with a little bit of a DWR coating. So it's going to, most of their stuff seems to have, their outer layers have somewhat of, whether they're waterproof or not, they have somewhat of a DWR water repellent coating. So they're going to be able to shed some moisture, which is nice. And also got some wick layers. I've got the wick hoodie, the wick quarter zip, and the wick t-shirt. That's a really, really nice base layer that I have worn under my outer layer for the most part. Those are lightweight merino wool layers, breathable, antimicrobial, all that good stuff that you get with merino wool. And the thing I will say overall about all the First Light stuff, I've been quite impressed with the overall weight of every piece of gear. It's all very lightweight. And then just the wearability, the the stretch where it needs to be, the comfort and the fit. It's a, the gear is, it's a tailored trim fit lineup of gear that all of it is fairly, I would say trim fit, athletically cut stuff. And if it's not I don't want to scare you off that everything is like super slim fit or tapered or anything like that. Most of it has, if it's not a really trim fitting piece of gear, like their t-shirts or layer base layers that are going to stretch and kind of, you've got some flexibility there. Their other items have, they've got adjustable, whether it's elastic cords or zippers, they've got stuff too that you can really dial in the fit, I feel like, for your body type, I guess if that makes sense. And so just as a whole, everything I felt like that I've tried to this point has been well thought out with how the stuff fits and moves with you for what it's designed to do. People hunting, you know, and when it comes to hoods, you can, they've got their turret hood system, which honestly, I don't find myself wearing hoods a lot while I'm up and hunting. I'm not sitting on hill glassing for big game, that kind of stuff, which 
I think it's basically designed for, but I will say when I pop that hood up, I've got great peripheral vision. So I wouldn't hesitate to use it were I wearing that jacket on a on a crappy day in the uplands. But for the most part, I'm not wearing jackets or anything like that. I did a little bit out on the prairie. I wore the Corgate guy jacket out there on a light, misty, rainy day, and it was perfect. It was honestly, it was perfect. It's a really lightweight, stretchy. You can move in the jacket. It shed all the moisture that I encountered that day. And it was kind of the perfect application for that. The one thing they didn't send me, which I really, I felt like I was kind of missing in my gear setup was a, I like a lightweight, stretchy, breathable outer layer that goes under my hunting vest and over some sort of base layer, depending on what the conditions are that day. That wasn't something that came in the kit that First Light sent me. So I contacted them and inquired about a few pieces of gear and was made aware of one that I did not know existed, which is the Ridgeline quarter zip, which is a lightweight quarter zip shell-like top layer that has, again, a little bit of water repellent coating, can shed a little bit of moisture, but for the most part is just there to help you slip through brush, shed a little moisture, and regulate body temperature. Now, I don't think anything other than maybe the Sawbox is specifically designed for upland hunting yet. I could be wrong there. I'm just guessing, but I bought the Ridgeline quarter zip with pro pricing. I've got the pro pricing plan from First Light. So I bought it at a discounted rate and I have been wearing that for the last two or three weeks and really, really like it. It basically fills the void that I was looking for to have that outer layer that goes under my vest, but over a base layer like the Wick t-shirt. And that's kind of been my go-to setup lately. It's been pretty comfortable talking temps in the in the 40s between 40 and 50 and don't need much more than a little t-shirt and an outer layer just to kind of protect your arms and stuff from the brush and got my my final rise vest over that so been wearing the ridgeline quarter zip it is appearing at this point to be relatively durable Um, that's the other thing is i didn't want it to be that outer layer you don't want it to be like a knit fabric or anything that is going to catch and snag and pill on all of the brush. And so the Ridgeline quarter zip is a more tightly woven fabric and it does a pretty good job of slipping through and shedding the brush. But again, I think that would be an area of improvement if I were to make a recommendation to First Light for upland hunting. Still need a top outer layer non-hooded outer layer kind of quarter zip layer that is very lightweight can protect a little bit from the elements breathe doesn't need to be waterproof but can slip through brush and hold up over time a very tightly woven fabric that will not catch and snag in the brush ridgeline quarter zip is doing a pretty good job of that so far but other than that all the first light stuff that i have either bought at a discounted rate or been sent I have been very impressed with and I'm wearing a lot of it at this point so if you have any questions on first light things or particular items that you're looking at and you're wondering if I tried it feel free to message me or email me on that stuff I'd be happy to fill you in if I have used a particular piece of gear I'm not going to list them all here all right and last but not least footwear an important one one that I have been I've been pretty well set up in 
for the past few years. I will say that I've talked a lot about on the podcast over the years, my gum leaf boots, rubber boots that I wear in wet grouse cover conditions and or as it gets into late season when the temps get a lot colder and we get some snow or just generally conditions kind of deteriorate in the woods. I'm wearing gum leaf Viking boots, neoprene lined rubber boots that last longer than other cheaply made, cheaply made rubber boots. And they are very comfortable, very low profile form fitting boot that I definitely rely on when the conditions warrant it. Now, the last couple of years have been very dry, relatively dry. And this year in particular, been really dry in the grouse woods. And so that has had me leaning on more just at that point, the, the knee high rubber boot can kind of become overkill if everything is bone dry and crunchy. So that combined with my trips out West where you really don't need a gum leaf boot, you want something more for hiking and a little bit more support and sort of long distance footwear. I was sort of, I hadn't explored that boot market much because I spent so little time out there, but I wanted to get something this year for my prairie trip. The primary purpose of getting this boot was to have a really nice boot for when I go out West early season on the prairie. And then I would also attempt to use it in the grouse woods when it's dry and conditions warrant it. So fast forward, the boot that I wound up on, I wanted to try crispy boots have been recommended a bunch to me from friends and other hunters. And I was a little on the fence about them right away. I know they're kind of like a mountain boot and I I know a lot of Western hunters wear it. And I just know that the terrain and the topography that I hunt is not so crazy that I need that style of boot. But at some point you reach a point where something is recommended enough and you're kind of thinking, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe I'll try it. So anyways, I dove into the crispy lineup. I talked to some folks. I knew what boots my friends had had and and I kind of steered myself towards, I was looking for, all right, what's the, what is the like most minimalist boot I can get away with? What is the least lightest weight boot that Crispy makes so that when I'm not wearing my knee high rubber gum leaf boots, I'm in a lightweight, low profile boot that I feel like I can just kind of float and cruise in. And the one I landed on, I had it down to two. They, they make this boot called the, I wouldn't even call it a boot, called the Ativa, which is almost like, it's like a high top sneaker that my buddy Wes Larrabee, he had him out in North Dakota two years ago and we were all checking them out there and kind of tried them on. And that was, it was appealing to me and I thought about getting that boot, but it was, that was so lightweight and Wes loved them. He raved about them. I even checked with him earlier this summer and asked him how much he liked them. And he said he really did like them for his purpose. And so I thought about that, but I decided to go one step up and kind of get into more of a official boot as opposed to that like sneaker like option. And so where that landed me was the Laponia two, which anybody familiar with the crispy lineup will probably know the Laponia as I understand it. That was a very, very popular boot. Kind of a, the way I sort of read about it was designed as maybe more of a casual boot, not for serious hunting or as serious as some of their heavier duty, higher profile boots like the Guy GTX and stuff. But what ended up happening is it was such a lightweight boot that was so capable. 
it seemed that people loved it. And again, I'm, I'm totally out of the Western big game boot world. So if I'm off base here, it is what it is. I'm just like basically going on what I was kind of reading and some of the videos I watched and stuff. And anyways, what I saw was a boot that was extremely lightweight. It was very low on the flex rating for crispy boots, meaning it had a more flexible sole than some of their higher end mountaineering style boots. And I knew that that's what I wanted. I didn't want a super stiff boot because I'm not hunting that rugged of terrain. And they're really light. They are 1.2 pounds per boot in a size 10, which I wear a size 10 and a half. So maybe mine are a little bit heavier, but they're one of the lightest boots that Crispy makes, but they still have most of the feature. They've got a full They've got a polyurethane coated leather rand, which wraps around the boot and helps the durability on the front. You'll see a lot of, you wear a boot that doesn't have that rand, they get ripped up and shredded on the front. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons people kind of steer towards some of these Western mountain style boots is that rand. And I had not tried a boot like that. So anyways, that's the boot that I landed on. It was they're they're only eight inches tall, so they're kind of a shorter boot, but they're, you've still got sort of full ankle support and what you're looking for in that regard. But other than that, they're low profile. I'm thinking they're not going to be as hot for my early season prairie hunts or when I'm wearing them here. Lower boot, again, how low profile of a boot can I get away with? The crispy Laponia too. When I was trying to buy them, it was like I was way behind the curve. They had, they were like sold out everywhere. I could not find them. I was searching, and it was coming down to the wire as far as the season goes, and I really wanted them. And fortunately, props to my friends at Orvis, the Orvis website must have got a shipment of them in there. I mean, I was looking for like a week or two weeks searching daily and could not find these boots, and then I happened to look and all of a sudden Orvis had a bunch of them. So I ordered them, paid full price, $285 from Orvis.com, got them before my prairie trip. And to make a long story short, I freaking love these boots. They are, they have exceeded all expectations, which again, I had never worn a boot of this caliber before. So I didn't have much to compare to, but what I will say is the lightweight form fitting, the way this boot fits your foot and holds your foot in place is way better than any other similar style upland boot that I've ever worn. And part of that I think is due to the lacing system. The lacing system in these boots is uh, maybe like, I I don't want to blow this out of proportion, but it's like incredible as far as like what other boots I've tried. It laces way down to the toe box. You can tighten that where you want it. You lace it up to sort of your midfoot where your ankle breaks. They've got a little lace lock in there so you can lock that into place and then you tighten the top of the boot. And man, when you get these things tied up, they are secure, firmly in place, super comfortable inside of the boot, wrapped all the way around your foot and they just perform. I just I just love them. And again, having not worn a boot like this in the past, I became a believer pretty quickly. And because, like I mentioned, it's been so dry here, I have pretty much worn these boots other than maybe a rainy day here or there. And we're getting into the late season where I may end up wearing my rubber gum leaf boots a little bit more. I have worn these crispy Laponia boots essentially every day from my prairie trip all the way up to this point. Again, not to go on and on about them, but I really, really like them. I will say, even though they are the 
more flexible, a more flexible version of crispy boots. I was still surprised at the stiffness of that sole when I first got them, not in a bad way, just a little bit surprising that I'd never worn a boot with that kind of a stiff sole, but you very quickly get used to that. And I think it does support you in certain ways. And there was maybe a little brief break-in period early on. I was I was getting one a hot spot on one of the boots, so I was this was on my prairie trip. I was switching between the crispy Laponia twos and the boots I had been wearing in previous years, just alternated days. And after a few hunts of that, by the time I got home into the grouse woods, it was crispy Laponia twos every single day, essentially from that point on. And they've been they've been great. Really impressed with the waterproofing. I mean, I'm out there in the dew and and some days I've worn them where I was kind of expecting to have soaked feet, even though they are waterproof and I wax them with Nick wax and I've taken care of them. They are performing very, very well. So if you're looking for a boot like that, lightweight, high quality boot that you can wear and put a lot of miles on. So far, my experience with the Laponia 2 GTX has been very, very positive and I'm loving my boots from Crispy. All right, that's a wrap on the gear conversation for this week's episode. Hope you enjoyed that one, and I'm going to leave you with that. Don't forget to leave a rating, leave a review for the podcast, subscribe, follow the show, and if you want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.